Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Musician Sinead O'Connor in the song, The Emperor's New Clothes, wrote, Everyone can see what's going on. They laugh because they know they're untouchable, not because what I said was wrong. And that's from the album, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got. In the spirit of sharing thoughts and ideas from different thinkers across the globe, today's guest's name is John Waters. He'll be coming to us from Ireland. He's an Irish thinker, talker, and author. Of note, in the early 1980s, he was a correspondent for what's called the Hot Press, which was Ireland's rock and roll newspaper, contributing reviews and interviews as well as a regular radio review column. With the Hot Press, he was instrumental in shifting the paper from its previous preoccupation with rock and folk music to a wider engagement with politics and culture. In the 90s, he was a regular columnist for the Irish Times and the London-based Observer. He's written a number of books, including his most recent, Give Us Back the Backroads, which was published in 2018. His work can currently be found at his Substack website, John Waters Unchained, at johnwaters.substack.com. So it's my pleasure to welcome today my guest, John Waters, coming to us from Ireland. John, thank you for joining me on Upthinking Finance. Thank you very much, Emerson. It's great to be with you. So I thought I'd ask you to maybe set sort of the foundation here, and and maybe as a person that's grown up in Ireland all your life, just sort of explain maybe the last 30 years of some of the notable transitions you've experienced. I've heard you in a couple interviews, and I just feel like you really capture, I think, certainly what you've lived through, but something that we all can kind of identify with really wherever we are. Yeah, when I was a child and in my teens, and when I was a young man, Ireland was kind of a backwater. It was kind of like just plodding along. It has regarded itself as kind of much of a failed entity in economic terms. For me, the 80s were the best ever time. It was just a beautiful decade and freedom and a sense of cultural explosion. But then what happened was we got rich. We got prosperous. We had a thing called the Celtic Tiger, which kind of started in the late 90s and continued for Well, a little over a decade, maybe. It hit the wall in 2007, 2008, with a real bang. And I think some of us began to realise actually the whole thing had been fraudulent. It was a kind of a boom-bust kind of three-card trick, whereby basically moved in on us, created a massive debt, and now they had us by the short and curlies. And that's kind of like a really, in a sketch, what happened. But fundamentally, before that, there were certain problems in Ireland that were never acknowledged. One was the history of Ireland as a colonised nation. And people, you see, kind of rationalise this by saying, well, Ireland was never a colony of Britain. It was like part of the empire or whatever. No, no, no. Who decided that? Like, who decided that we were part of the empire? I didn't. My people didn't. We weren't part of the empire. So colonisation is a psychological process more than it is anything else. And that's the issue that has really, I think, done for Ireland in a major way. Colonisation creates all kinds of pathologies, including self-hatred, including the desire to mimic the master, including all kinds of things. And I mean, it's rife. The great Franz Fanon wrote it elaborately about it out of Algeria during the Civil War there in the late 50s. He was a psychiatrist and he did analysis of all of that in his books, The Wretched of the Earth and Black Skin, White Masks. When I read those books, I said, these books are about Ireland, they're about my people, because we were inflicted with all kinds of grief and pain and torture, you name it. I mean, we had 
had so-called famines here in the 1840s, which weren't famine, famines, they were genocides. And I mean, those things still stay well. Through my working life as a journalist, I've been trying to alert Irish people to the fact that these pathologies remain with us. The way I put it, I could see the famines, so-called, in the way my uncles walked, in their disposition and their demeanours, because they were beaten, defeated people. They were shamed people. And this is what happened to our nation. And then what happened was that we decided in modernity that we would become modern and successful by imitating what our masters told us or what they did and the way they spoke and the way they acted, their priorities, their aspirations. We took all this on board. This is why we are now regarded as laughably the wealthiest country in the world and also the most progressive country in the world. Ireland is a terrible place now. Anybody with an honest mouth on them is going to tell you that. Even the people who have been dishonest and who have led us up this garden path know it in their hearts that Ireland is in the most serious trouble it's possibly ever been in. And we're on the point of outright capitulation to a slavery that is unimaginable. And this is really so heartbreaking for me. And one of the most heartbreaking things about it is that the people of Ireland now don't love their country anymore. It's quite patent in the way they speak about it. My father was 50 when I was born. So he's much older than me. He was like a grandfather in a way. So but that was an amazing experience for me because it gave me access, as it were, to like three centuries all at once. The past, the middle and the present and the future. I was able to connect with really kind of fundamental concepts and feelings about Ireland because that generation, my father and mother's generation, was the most patriotic generation, I would say, that ever was born in Ireland because they were so inspired by the the Easter Rising of 1916 and the extraordinary event which was really created in order to create a defeat which would become its own victory. It was a really remarkable thing because it was based on the idea of Easter, the crucifixion followed by the resurrection. And that's exactly what happened. Ireland rose out of the ashes as supposedly a free country, but I think that's now a doubtful kind of thing. I think that they pulled a trick and really Ireland was never completely freed from Britain. So that's a long story, but I think it's increasingly to believe it is true. And I think somebody, uh, I was speaking recently to Alex Craner about these things, and he is of the view that the British Empire never went to sleep. The sun never set on the British Empire. It's still there. So we are in this situation now where I believe a coalition of outside interests have become extraordinarily interested in Ireland for all kinds of reasons, I believe. We are critically important to them, strategically and otherwise. In Europe, we are an island nation. We have good defences in that sense. Would they can? And also we are infinitely malleable, I'm sorry to say. Infinitely. Our political class are the most corrupt on the planet. I don't apologise. I will not hear any alternative claim to this. Not Lord the most corrupt, but Lord okay. the most stupid, which is a fascinating combination. That's a dangerous combination. Yes, <laughs> so we're in deep, deep trouble. <laughs> and the reality is that Ireland claims to be the richest country in the world. It is rich on paper. Please, please, please. It is rich on paper because all of the corrupt multinationals from America and elsewhere, have their headquarters here. And they're using two sets of books. They have been, from the beginning, defraud their own internal revenue commissioners. And Ireland has set itself up as basically a prostitute nation for these corporations, who now decide 
what our country will be and what its future will be. You bring up a really interesting point. I don't know that I've heard getting back to, you said there was a bit of a psychological process to this. And I was thinking while you were describing these events in the 1800s, I'm thinking, it just my thought was, well, how do you personally connect to that? But then you connected it through your lineage, right? Your posterity and how we take that on, which is a really interesting idea because I have to say, you reminded me of something because one of the things that's happened here, which is is exactly what you described, is this loss of pride in country, the loss of nationalism as if there's something wrong with that. And I remember President Trump, love him or hate him, he did a 4th of July celebration in July of 2020 that it was at Mount Rushmore. And for some, maybe it was a little hokey with the Yankee Doodle Dandy and all that. I was in tears, man. It reminded me of there's something inborn. I think there's an innate feeling about country that's somehow been part of this process that's been removed. I just thought I hadn't even thought of this. You think, of the debt, you think of all this overt stuff, but there's a subtlety that you're describing. And maybe that's the question. I mean, does this go as far back? I mean, is it that diabolical that this isn't something that's just a recent development that's connected somehow to the removal of the gold standard? <laughs> you know, that's what we go back yeah, to. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can go back, you could start there as well, and you would get a functional analysis, hypothesis of the whole thing. But I think it's much deeper. It's been going on for hundreds of years. I've no doubt about it now. And it's very deep because what you talk about there, the nation, nationhood, the national soul. It is a spiritual condition, as the great Porrick Pierce, the leader of our revolution in 1916, said so often and wrote in an essay called The Spiritual Nation. It is a spiritual relationship. Of course it is. We love our country. We adore our country. We are absolutely slain in the spirit by our country. The idea that it might be taken from us, which it is being, is the most terrifying thing, worse than death itself, in my view. To think that we would be alive and our nation would be taken from us is to me the most unimaginable horror. And these people have no souls, you see. They're zombies. And this is the problem, you see. They don't know what you're talking about. And they call you far right if you love your nation. This is a spurious uh, equivalence with Nazism, which is a most ludicrous and idiotic principle. But you see, the world is full now of idiotic principles which are despouted, repeated, repeated, repeated on Twitter, 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 Twitter. This nonsense. This is destroying the world. I have said it a million times. I will say it one more time. When the investigation takes place, I don't know when, maybe a hundred years time, into why Western civilization fell in the early part of the 21st century. The anthropologists will go out into the ruins and they will spend whatever time, maybe months, maybe years investigating, and they will come back with one sheet of paper and they will hold it up and it will have just one word for the cause of this. And that word will be Twitter. <laughs> it is the most destructive thing that has ever happened because it allowed all of the stupidest, the stupidity to rise to the top of our culture and all the malevolence and all the malice and all the ignorance and all the lack of soul, all rising to the top. And now they govern us. Now they control everything. We cannot speak the truth because they are screaming and spitting downwards upon us. So... Let me ask you this, because you alluded to this earlier, John, and you mentioned this in a conversation you had with Matt Carpenter, which I really enjoyed too, the Good Life podcast. But you talked about leaders being incompetent and shifting and now appearing to be part of an orchestrated script. 
When did you start to really tune into this? I mean, I know you've been a writer and a journalist for years, and maybe this is just something you've been witnessing in real time. But I'm one of these people, you probably talked to a few that really actually started to see things at the beginning of the COVID. That's when all of a sudden I started questioning, particularly at the financial world and the industry, and started to see became acquainted with World Economic Forum and just this coordinated ESG agenda and all this stuff. How long have you been really just noticing that In things sense, were... I'm the same as you. I didn't make the connections until the COVID uh, crime began. But actually, when now I go back, I realized that all of the things that had been concerning me as a writer and as a journalist were part of what was happening. I had been, albeit somewhat ignorantly, I have to say, paying attention to all the right things. I just didn't understand the connections between them for many, many years, many decades, because now I realized that there were three fundamental impulses in my work. And they're the ones that Viktor Orban has recently spoken about in Hungary, where he spoke about the two kinds of people in the world. There were the me, me, me people are the people on Twitter, I would say. And then there are the people who have higher values. And those values he identified as family, nation, God. And those have been the three kind of strongest themes of my work for 35, 40 years. And they brought me into all kinds of scrapes, battles about referendums to change the constitution, to introduce abortion, to introduce gay marriage, to introduce so-called children's rights. But before that, to fight because of father, I could see that fatherhood was being attacked in our culture. And this seemed to me the most primal thing. There was something bizarre about it because a society that spoke about equality wanted to give out equality in all kinds of directions, except the most fundamental direction of all, which is the connection of a father to his children. They wanted to destroy that while giving equality to everybody else. And that alerted me. But I didn't, to be honest with you, and I'm quite frank about it, I did not see all of these connections. And I would say as well, Jimson, that there are probably much, many more connections that I have yet to see. Some of this is mind-boggling when you start to look at it and realize that the world was never what you thought it was, that it was being controlled all along. Now, in my defense, I would say that it didn't seem to me, and it doesn't seem to me now, in a certain sense, that the Ireland I grew up in through the 60s and 70s and 80s was controlled in that way. It seemed to be left to its own devices, perhaps because it was poor and a failure and so on. Oh my God, I wish we had remained poor failure. Well, that was the inspiration for my last book, which is the title of is Give Us Back the Bad Roads, because that is really the symbol of our neo-colonization was all of these motorways being built around Ireland. They are connected to our membership of the EU, the European Union, from 73 onwards, 50 years ago now, which has been the destruction of Ireland. We have lost our soul. We have lost everything of value to us as a people. But all of these motorways, and I think back to my childhood, driving around with my father in a rickety jalopy, but such innocence and such pride and such hope as we had. And now we ended up with a bunch of scumbags, pardon my French, that run our beautiful country. And there's nothing we can do to dislodge them. Well, let me ask you this, because yeah, you guys, you're covering a bunch of things. And I mean, it's, I feel like I'm listening. It's no different over here, you know? I mean, I'm aware, yeah, but... I'm aware. That's really something I very much feel. In a certain sense, there's a paradox here because they are trying to turn America into Ireland into a form of another state of America. So it's to make us indistinguishable in their woke ideological terms and so on. 
But actually, in another sense, it is true, because, of course, we have had very strong connections with America. And we can see now and have a close identification with America, with the United States. You know, I would say that possibly, and this is relates to what I've just been describing, the kind of forlorn situation we're in and the helplessness of it and the lack of spirit, the lack of manhood, all of these things, that actually we may have to look to America to rescue us from these people in due course. And for that reason, much as for all the ambiguities about Trump, etc., etc., and perhaps to the extent to which his first term was a disappointment because he could have done so much more, I feel. Nevertheless, I get extraordinary, sometimes in spite of myself, listening to him, more so watching the faces of his people, the deplorables, I get an extraordinary charge of hoping out of that. Because honestly, Emerson, we do not have the means within ourselves, in my view, in Ireland now to rescue ourselves. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. Alex Craner, you mentioned him. In fact, I was just talking to him this morning. We had a call <laughs> before our, our meeting and he said that to me a while ago. He says, America hasn't given up its guns yet. <laughs> but you mentioned, and I was going to ask you about this, the EU. And I got to be honest with you, when I was doing a little research for this conversation, I actually didn't realize the EU has been around as long as it has. In my mind, I kind of connected to the euro, which and I think I'm remembering this right. That was like late 90s, mid to late 90s. But are you familiar with Russell Napier? Does that name ring a bell at all? He's a Scottish economist over in Edinburgh. He runs this thing called the Library of Mistakes, but he's written a number of books. He's actually a really interesting man and really smart, but he wrote a book and he talked about, he was consulted when the EU idea with the currency was first being thrown around and he immediately advised against it. And it was kind of what you got to was that to try to take... America is relatively new compared to European countries like yours. To try to take these countries and somehow fuse these different ethnic cultures into one kind of, you know, he just didn't see how that was ever going to work. And I think now, if, at least from what I read, it's starting to blow up. But can you maybe just point out a few things? Because you mentioned how it's killed your country. Do you mind being just a little more specific on that? Would that be okay? Sure. Well, essentially, it has destroyed the imagination of our country. And I would put that first and foremost as a transcendent imagination. That is an imagination that is in the sense of it is tailored to the structure of man in which the idea of moving through the world, through this reality, towards something great, whether it's true or not. Let's leave that to one side. But that is the perfect, the ideal disposition of a human being walking across the face of this planet, because that is the way that you can keep walking tall, moving forward and direct it along a path at a particular imagined or maybe non-specific destination. And of course, mythologies, and there's a great writer back, uh, Philip Reef, American sociologist, way back in, well, he's been dead for about 20 years now, but he wrote some books about this whole thing in which he divided human existence up into three, what he called three worlds, not the normal first world, second world, third world, but what he called, they were kind of like religious, imaginative realities. The first being the mythological realm of ancient Greek and Greece and the American native Indians and so on, who have belief in gods, belief in transcendence, but on the basis of fate and taboos is what he said, fate, F-A-T-E. And then after that, you had the Abrahamic phases where you have Christian Christianity, Judaism, Islam, who, which have equally a transcendent aspiration. But in their cultures, there is what he calls faith, obviously, F-A-I-T-H, and also commandments. And then he says, when that goes, the third world is of complete inversion, 
where you go into a kind of a tailspin of nihilism and hedonism and meaninglessness. That's what we're in in Ireland. That's the meaning, that's the encapsulation, if you like, of our state. The symptoms of nothing new. They are woke, there are drag queens demanding to be allowed into the presence of children so they can rub their private parts as close as possible to these poor children. Like, in a civilised country, this is even being talked about. It's beyond imagination that we even have to have this argument should be a possibility even that the parents of these people would not improvise some weapon and go to whatever school was trying to do this or whatever library was doing this and put an end to it straight away. That's an example. So all of this stuff has been going on for years, Emerson. I mean, it's quite staggering. People think that it's religious objections to this. This is a very important question because it's actually not the case in the sense that they mean it. Even though religions offer the same objections to these things. One doesn't have to be a member of a religion to see that these are obscenities against human nature. When I was fighting the referendum in 2015 on the marriage question, I got a call from a German journalist and she was asking me about my position and I started to cite the constitution and its valuing of the family, the natural complementary family, man and woman, the importance of that, the molecule of society and so on. And I was talking like this. Next thing she interrupted me and she says, ah, yes, but you're a Catholic, aren't you? And I said, ah, yes. You see, the reduction comes in because, you see, Catholicism by their understanding is just simply a list of dogmas which you have swallowed and that regurgitate at demand. It cannot possibly be a reasonable process which is connected to, your, to the structure of your humanity and the structure of the world. So my point is that you can actually discover all of these precepts in Catholicism and learn about them. But only, I would say, if you've already discovered them in reality and they, you find not just a confirmation of them, but a theology of them, a philosophy of them that is capable of making connections that perhaps you had missed. That's the whole point of religion in these contexts, the religious teaching of the church, the social teaching, the adequate anthropology, as Pope John Paul called it, the Catholic Church. So this is really a sketch. I mean, I could go on here for 24 hours about the appalling things that are happening in our country. Really, it is shocking what is happening. They're moving in now on old people trying to steal their homes. They're flooding the country with different aliens, people who don't even know the name of the country they're in and care less, and are shouting racist at everybody within earshot. All of this. And now they're moving in on old people in their houses, trying to take their houses so they can give them to these migrants. That they offer them reconstruct their houses, renovate their houses. They will pay 80% if X and Y. But the ultimate upshot of it is that if the person dies, this is old people, single old people living alone. They're targeting them. It's beyond imagination. And the reality of it will be that these people will eventually sign over their houses to the state or to whoever the state nominates as its proxy. That's an interesting thing. I actually just started reading a book called The Collapse of Antiquity by Michael Hudson, and he gets into basically what you're describing, that we go back to like the Roman Empire and the ancient Greece and all these things, and people associate the wars and the military power with rise and fall of these empires. But he actually basically brings it down to control of land and property. And it's this recycle that's clearly, and I'm only in the beginning of it, mirrors exactly what you're talking about what goes on here when people are inflated out of being able to afford their houses and the Black Rocks and these big companies swallow them up and turn it into a renter's nation. I mean, it's like the same playbook over and over. But I wanted to ask you, because you've mentioned in a couple of the interviews I've listened to about, and I'm using my word, there's an element of betrayal. And you talked about your neighbors. You 
use the word your neighbors who are called to lead, all of a sudden, I think you said, have turned on people like dogs. And then you also talked about the church and how they really, I think this is my words, caved in kind of what I would consider a defining moment, which was three and a half years ago. My question, though, and maybe you can elaborate on your perception of that, but I guess the question underlying all that is, is I'm still at a loss to understand why people are so willingly, I guess, in my words, so easily bought. I mean, what is it that make it so easy for people to just sell out anything that could be considered remotely sacred? There's a few questions in there. <laughs> I do. And I'm not so sure how much help I can give you with this, because there is a dark place, the part of this, the dark part of this that I don't comprehend. Because to me, it is unimaginable that you anybody could have any part in the selling out of their country. So then you have to ask where they bought off and how much were they bought off for? And what is the deal? Have they a seat on the ark? Are they promised when all this comes down that they will be able to escape? Because it's coming down. I mean, this can't work, you see. There's no way they can transition into an equally functional reality on the basis of what they're doing. This is my belief. And so the result would be that they will fail miserably, but they will destroy the world in the process. This is my opinion. But you see, the one possibility that's put out is that these people are being blackmailed, that they are the kind of people, and this wouldn't surprise me, that are such as it were dirtbirds in their private lives and so on, that they are easily blackmailed because they have a trail of filth coming behind them. I don't know. It's beyond imagination, really. I can't understand it. And this is the thing we're here in this bizarre world now. You were talking about Black Rock and all that stuff. Like, I mean, when you think about Emerson, like I lived in a culture which was really influenced by the Anglophone culture from America and Britain and Europe, of course, as well, in a slightly different way. But European civilization and the residue of that is it worked through the continent, which is a complex thing because of the multiplicity of languages and yet the commonality of cultural heritage. It's really a fascinating thing. But you're dead right. It wasn't ever going to work because of those kind of that fractured nature. But when you look at Black Rock, what they've basically done is this series of trick hard tricks. But when I think about it, like I've listened all my life to the societal leaders, the politicians, the editors, the journalists, the lawyers, the philosophers, such as they were, poets, and so on. And implicit in virtually the words of every one of them was the same ideology, which was an idea of progress and an idea of liberalism. And that implied, I assumed, liberty. I assumed that liberty still meant the same thing as it had meant in the beginning. But then we realized back in March, April 2020, that there was something seriously wrong, that these people were no longer, not alone did they not do what I assumed they did, which was jump immediately to the barricades and say, no, stop, enough, you can't do this. But they actually were attacking, I who did, they were attacking me. And to this day, I am in shock at that because I was doing nothing except giving voice and action to the principles they had expounded all their lives in public. The liberal agenda, as they called it. I don't mean that the progressive agenda is slightly different, but the idea that man is free and that freedom is the root of everything. But then they were telling us then that, oh no, freedom is a far right obsession. Your question about are these people being bought off in relation to the politicians, you must go further with it and ask, what is the mechanism whereby an entire cadre right across society, cohort, who are the thought leaders, the influencers, sign up silently 
it seems, in advance. They've already been signed up, it seems, because there was no public discussion after this appalling crime was initiated. And nobody protested, except mavericks like me, people who were never part of the liberal set in the first place. Interestingly, I would describe myself, although I'm not fussed about it, but if you asked me to, I would say I'm kind of a classical liberal in the sense that I believe in freedom. I believe in the freedom of human beings. But liberalism, of course, I come to mean different things. And what we realise now about liberalism, that what it means is that it's an insistence that humanity must be changed. And it doesn't necessarily have a final destination for humanity. It may well actually, that destination may well be death for all we know, because sometimes that's implicit in some of the things they say in relation to climate change and whatever, that they human beings stand up on their hind legs and decry the actions and presence of human beings. Well, if you carry that logic to its ultimate conclusion, I think it's pretty obvious what will happen. And sometimes I think, well, it's happening. It's happening now that the process that we're undergoing seems intent upon the destruction of the human race. And again, we have a culture, a conversation. Well, it's not between the animals in the fields. It's not between the cattle and the sheep. It's between human beings. And essentially, that discussion is a debate as to whether the human race should be allowed to continue or not, and on what terms. But then you stop and say, yes, but who's asking this? Who's saying this? And we find that the power has drifted to the top. And the weird thing about it is, Emerson, that all these rebels and mavericks and Marxists and revolutionaries and insurrectionists whom we saw with their placards from the 1960s on the street, on the street, on the street, they're all good with Larry Fink being the emperor of the whole world. It's mind boggling. I say to people, who is the Prime Minister of Ireland, the Taoiseach, we call him. And they say, Leah Radker, I say Radcreep. No, I say Larry Fink. Larry Fink is the Prime Minister of Ireland. He is the Taoiseach. And who is the Chief Justice of Ireland? They say, Donald O'Donnell. I say, you must be joking. It's Larry Fink. Because all these guys do the will. They carry out the will of Larry Fink. And that makes Larry Fink the holder of all these offices. Because he has the money. But, Emerson, here's the interesting thing. It's not even money. What he actually has done this with, his cadre of people, what they've used is not money. It's not real money. It's a trick. It's literally like a trick card trick at a fair where they basically use these tokens to relieve you of your property. Through inflation, perhaps, through the tricks that I'm talking about, moving in old people, stealing their houses, pushing some migrant into their houses and telling them that they're going to be a racist if they don't accept this migrant. And then they're found in a pool of blood one morning in their bathroom, which is happening too. And then the church. You asked me about the church. I cannot tell you how disgusting the church has become in Ireland. I am lost for words. And I struggle with this because for many years I defended the church and spoke about the faith and spoke about religion in a philosophical way and the importance of it, the centrality of the religious idea to the imagination of humanity, of a functioning humanity. But now I look at them and I see them on the altar with their hand sanitizer before they handle the host. And I hear that somebody I knew as a child has died alone without a doctor or without a priest because these guys wouldn't go to visit them. I mean, it's grief it's grief inducing to think about that part of it. I find it really hard to even think about it. And then in a different domain, I hear them like talking about mass migration and bullying the people of Ireland that they have to accept who all comers, all comers, doesn't matter who, on what basis, however fraudulent and completely, well, frankly, lying about what the church's teaching is. Because the church's teaching on mass migration is nothing like they're saying, nothing like what the Pope is saying. The church's teaching on mass migration was laid down 
many centuries ago by Thomas Aquinas and his remains. That if people have no responsibility to absorb into their cultures other than people who are willing to revere that culture and have an expressed wish to be there and a reason to be there and who apply with humility and respect and veneration for membership of that nation. And yes, Aquinas said, such a person, such a family may be accepted into a nation after two to three generations. He did not say that by giving them 1100 quid out of the taxpayers' petty cash, they can go into a room and buy an Irish passport, regardless of where they came from or what their intentions are in our country. And if you say this, you're a racist. Well, I don't care what they call me. They've called me everything. They have called me misogynist. They've called me xenophobe. They've called me racist. They've called me homophobe. They've called me transphobe. They're running out of words. They're running out of phobes. And I'm still here. I don't care. I don't care. And the only hope for my country is if other people stop caring as well. I don't know if the silver lining is the right word, but as I listen to you and I'm thinking about kind of the transformation that seems to be happening for people, that'll be kind of the maybe a last place we can go, what you're observing. I know that one of the shifts that's happened for me, you talk about the church. I served in leadership in a church here that talked about religious freedom. I mean, that was like a big thing. And then the defining moment, in my view, came with the whole this the lockdowns, which were unconstitutional. And suddenly the control of religious freedom was given to Governor Newsom in California. And then, of course, there was the whole recommending people turn their health over to not God or anything like that, but over to the likes of Pfizer. And the thing is, is people show their cards in moments like this. I was on a call with one of these big wealth firms in May of 2020. This was when the light went on. And you remember what was going on then. The flat and the curve line was becoming permanent at that point. And the economist on the line was talking about pimping China. <laughs> and I just remember thinking it just didn't make sense. Completely just disconnected from what was going on in the moment. And I'm a guy who likes to zig when everybody's zagging. And that spurred me to start looking. And then, of course, that's what happens is, is you start realizing that, at least for me, it's your own discernment. It's ultimately your own discernment that gets you through this kind of world where you question, like you said, everything. It's all up for grabs. History, all of it. And there is a freedom in that. There actually is a freedom in that. It's certainly the You've been doing it longer than me, really, it sounds like. But you find that you start to see things and there's a bit of a freedom in not being locked into these limited kind of the menu that's been presented before us once we're born. So I guess that's maybe, that's just for what I've learned. But where do you see this going, John? And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but to me, I think for me personally, this next election in the U.S. is the make or break defining moment. I don't have faith in our elections at all being pure unless there's some major change or some things exposed. To me, Republican, Democrat, it's all the same. It doesn't matter anymore. It's just who's in a chair. It's all been this illusion. It's all been this illusion. And so I'll throw that one in your lap, kind of round this out. Where do you see this headed? Okay, well, I mean, just what you were saying about the church there. I mean, rightly or wrongly, I grew up trusting the church in broad terms to act according to reason. Something that you could intuit what was good, the good response. And when I see tyrants coming down the street with basically metaphoric driving metaphorical tanks. I look around me and I expect to find the Archbishop of Dublin up with his crozier saying stop to the trank. And they didn't do that. They didn't do that. And that was the beginning of the end for me. Because during the Black Death, the priests, they went out around the world to reach people, to reach as many people to save their souls. That was their imperative. They didn't care about getting infected. They needed to get to those people. And that was the priority. Now, how far have we gone from that? And what did that tell you, Emerson? To me, it tells me that these guys don't believe in God anymore. They don't believe in anything anymore. They are just functionaries. They're social workers working for the man. 
let me interrupt you though, John, because you're right. And this is something, it's like, I look at the life of Jesus. You talk a lot about Christ and he wasn't somebody who was worried about fitting in or acquiescing to the trends of them. I mean, that guy was a complete revolutionary. Yeah. He was true to the mission. And that to me is a litmus yeah. test. And you're exactly right. Who's living up to that? And he hugged the lepers. He went and he embraced the lepers. Well, where's that gone to? We're afraid of a sneeze. We're afraid of a cough. This is how ridiculous it's got. But of course, it's not about a sneeze or a cough at all. It is about something else. It's about all the stuff we're talking about. So you ask me, well, where does it go? Well, okay. Well, you know, it's pretty dark. I think this is the worst moment in the history of the world, frankly, with that potential. This could be the worst moment because we're on the threshold of entering into hell on earth. There's no question in my mind about that. When you see all the symptoms, what they're trying to do, how they're trying to shove people into cities, how they're trying to control them, how they're going to imprison them for using their fires, for using their fuel, all of these things, when they're trying to stop them growing their own vegetables so they will be completely dependent on the state. All of these things, they're all there and they're not conspiracy theories. Journalism, by the way, have I said that the journalist, the name, I've changed their name of journalist to journal liar, but that word is inadequate. I now propose the word skunk, skunk. That is what journalists are, skunks, because they have been instrumental in facilitating this coup and this stealing, not just of the freedom and the authority and the power and the sovereignty of the people, but the plundering of their resources, which is the next stage. But, 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 you see, this is where my hope comes from. And it's not a pious kind of Jesus will come and save us kind of literalism. I don't see it like that, but I do think something else. I feel something else, that this is not going to happen because it is wrong. God lives. And while God lives, we must live and we must fight for his kingdom. And that is the thing that will make it happen, that will make the victory come for us. It's not going to be achieved, in my opinion, on our knees. It's quite the contrary. It's going to become achieved by speaking the truth to power and shaming those who have behaved so abominably, which includes the journalist skunks, the bishops, the Pope, the politicians, the presidents, the whole lot, prime ministers, whatever, the scientists and the doctors. Disgraceful. Disgraceful. Not all of them. In fairness, I mean, we've seen a huge number of really ethical doctors emerge in the last three and a half years. But man, the way like that, they have participated, they have conducted a genocide, Emerson, in our country. There's no other word for it. And it's a genocide that is happening behind a veil, a veil of pretense that nothing is happening. This misdirection, this conjuring act that's going on all the time, where this pseudo reality is placed in front of people. And this evil happens just behind the veil. I was reading a paper recently about genocide and the nature of it. It has to do with how it works is that most strongly is when there is a gift, a gap between the perpetrators and the victims. And you know what that gap is? Social distance. When there is social distance between the killer and the victim, the murder is more likely to happen. What did they do? What was the first thing they introduced in 2020? Social distancing, the beginning of the genocide. Well, I'm with you. I think ultimately this does boil down to a good versus evil battle. I mean, I know that sounds simplistic, but I think that's ultimately what it is. And yes, and it's not simple either, Emerson. It is a simple encapsulation, but it is the deepest thing in all of our imaginations. The most primal force in the world is that good versus evil. And because those two entities exist, then the evil one exists, but also the good one, God, exists. All we can do then is reason to ourselves, what is the good thing to do? What is the right thing to do? Every day, little things, small things, the power of the powerless, as Václav Havel called it, to actually stand against this and shame these people 
out of existence. You're right about, you made a comment in one of your last interviews that the solution, it's not like we all have to go out and feel like this burden to try to, how do we solve this problem? It's really, as you just said, it's having these kind of conversations. I mean, I didn't have a global network three and a half years ago. I stumbled into Alex Craner through an article he wrote on a financial blog, and that opened up a whole huge bunch of doors that's been very reassuring of smart, educated people who see this And so these messages get shared. It does matter. You throw enough little pebbles in the lake and soon you got these ripples going everywhere and it's touching more and more people. And so I appreciate that. I appreciate that view. And we all have our little world and our little stewardship. But if everybody's, as you said, aware and at least trying to do something, even if it's just, it's the littlest thing, but it all adds up. I think that's kind of, what is that, Gandhi? You move an inch every day and after a year, you've gone a mile or something. (laughs) Something like that. To kind of put flesh on why it works is really important as well. Well, it works because it is by our actions, our movements, the smile on our faces, the demeanor we have in public, the fact that we have spoken truthfully about this and people now look to us in confusion, in questioning, in doubt, maybe. But they see us and they see a demeanor that is not sneaky, is not stealthy, it is not, you know, underhand. And that is itself a statement that could turn the world around from this. Because what they have tried to do is beat people into sheep to make them kind of so that they shrivel up into them and just crawl around looking for a direction from one another. So we, again, going back again, and it's precisely what I described as relation to walking to reality, the religious demeanor, the religious sense in reality is to walk upright on the path that you envisage before you, moving forward towards the horizon, towards a destination that may be clear, may be unclear, but nevertheless, you know that you are going somewhere important, great, and that you want to go there. But the journey on the way is important too, because that's where other people see you walking and say, I want to walk with him. And that's the way we will do this. And I believe it is possible if we can find in ourselves the disposition to be clear in our minds that what is happening is wrong. You see, how they did it was really convince people with propaganda and lies and fear and so on, that they were good guys. They wanted to save lives. No, they didn't. I just said it. Social distancing, that's a genocidal instrument. In its absolute essence, that's what it is. And from that very first proposal, they were announcing themselves as evil ones. And we need to grasp that and then look around and say, well, who are the good guys? Because the cavalry is not going to come over the hill. We are the cavalry. We don't have any horses, unfortunately, for the moment, but (laughs) (laughs) the horses will come. The horses will come if we make the journey. I appreciate the time. And, you know, I come away with these kind of conversations just feeling that guy over here in Utah and a gentleman over in Ireland can have a conversation about things. And somehow, to me, that seems like a win. It just seems like a win for the day. It's fantastic. It's so important, that point, because people think, oh, what's Ireland got to do with Utah? Well, everything, everything. You know what I mean? We are one people in our struggle, our aspirations and our hoping. And this is something that I realized in the last few years, too for the first time, because for many years I wrote in Irish newspapers and it's a very parochial kind of backwater. But now in the last three years or so, I've started to go out to the world and realize that actually the things I have experienced are eminently relevant to people all over the world, that our experiences fundamentally and certainly our experiences of evil are very similar. You're right. And that's the thing I think that's gotten 
we've lost our connection. And I think that's, as you say, that isolation, that social distancing. We start to see people not as brothers and sisters anymore, but as threats. (laughs) Then you connect with people again and you realize there's just power in that energy. Listen, I appreciate your time, John, on an evening here over in Ireland. And I just want to thank you so much today for joining me on Upthinking Finance. Well, thank you very much, Emerson. It's a great pleasure uh, to talk to you. And I hope when this is over that we can talk again and maybe before that, but that we will talk and we will laugh about to whatever little unhope was in our hearts at any given moment, that we can laugh at that and say how stupid it was. That's a vision for the future. I love to end on a rising note of hope. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Emerson. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.